We're starting a series called Good News, looking at the good news of Scripture. And so I'd invite you to uh, take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have one that's been disinfected that our uh, ushers have. They'll be bringing them around. So just raise your hand and indicate to them, and they'll make sure to get you one. So open up to Romans chapter 3. If you are using the Bible um, that's uh, being circulated that looks like this, that's on page 940. You can find it on page 940. If you're not using this Bible, I can't tell you your page number. We'll be reading verses 9 to 26. Romans 3, verses 9 to 26. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 26. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You can be seated as we pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful morning and the beauty of gathering with your people. And together, your people, now, we unite our prayers and say, we know we don't live by bread alone. We need your word. So, would your spirit come in power and work in our hearts and our minds and shape us? We want to see an outpouring of your spirit through your word, the sword of the spirit this morning. We're praying for our own hearts and we're praying for all who would hear. 
Hear our prayers, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. There's a simple phrase I want to teach you this morning that I think has the best news possible for your soul. And here's the phrase. Justification through propitiation. Kind of catchy, eh? Thank you for the laugh. Justification through propitiation. I want you guys to try it. So turn to someone you're sitting nearby. Kids, you can try this one too. Try and say that. Justification through propitiation. All right, so why did I choose a phrase like that? It's a little stiff, a little stodgy, a little kind of highfalutin theology. Why, why I choose a phrase like that to start a sermon? Well, I, I do think it's good and important to learn some of those important theological words. But I actually chose it because I wanted to pique all of our curiosities with, with kind of those interesting words and say, I want to learn what that phrase means so that, that we'll be engaged to hear the message this morning. And also then once we've understood it, it's a memorable phrase. We can go home and talk with our kids or talk with our spouse or talk with our friends about this phrase and, and the, we'll remember the heartbeat of this message. So it, it, it piques the curiosity to also help you remember it. Three words, justification through propitiation. And we'll be learning it because it's the message of our passage this morning. And our passage, Romans 3, 9 to 26, really falls into three main sections. And the first section runs from verse 9 all the way through verse 20. And I've, I've kind of labeled this section, no path to justification. No path to justification, 3, 9 to 20. Now, I suppose since I put the, in the label the word justification, I should explain what the word justification means. It's actually a word that is repeated numerous times in our passage. There are two words in our passage, justification and righteousness, which both translate the same Greek word. So really justification and righteousness are very similar. Justification means to be declared righteous, declared righteous. But, but let me kind of tease out, there, there's different ways one could be justified. So let's say that last night in Georgetown, someone matching my description damaged a bunch of the street signs in Georgetown. So I'm brought in because someone matching my description did this damage. But after careful interview and investigation, they find out that I, in fact, wasn't the one who did it. It was somebody who looked like me, but it wasn't me. And on the, virtue, or on the basis of that investigation, I am declared righteous. I am declared innocent. In that case, I would be justified. But there's another way to be justified. Let's say it was me. I was a little bored last night, something came over me, and I went out and damaged a bunch of the signs. And so the judge who's over me says, all right, you're going to have to pay for all those signs to be replaced. And in addition, you're going to have to do 100 hours of community service to, to to just be restorative to our community, to, to, to communicate that you understand what you did was wrong and you're wanting to make it right. 
And so I'm able to gather together the money and I pay it off. And then I, I work and I work and I work and I, and I do my 100 hours of community service. And at the end of that, even though I'd done the wrong, I, I've taken the steps I've needed to be restored to a right standing within the community. And so the judge can declare me justified or righteous again. So I can be declared righteous. I can be justified on the basis of kind of doing the restorative work necessary to make up for the wrong I did. Does that help you understand what the word justified means? Declared righteous, if you're keeping notes. Two words, declared righteous, justification, right? So, no path to justification. That's really clear because right at the beginning of our passage or this section of the passage, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And at the end in verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable, held accountable to God. So everybody understand, everybody's mouth stopped, everybody accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There's no path to justification. Now this, this uh, 9 through 20 is really the cap it's the, the finishing argument of an argument that began all the way in chapter 1. An argument that's showing us that all of us are under sin. So it begins, uh, it begins with this really apt description of our world in chapter 1, in verse 29. Just if you think about what's wrong with our world today, and hear this, and you're like, wait, God wrote that two millennia ago? Seems like a pretty apt description today. They are, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not do them but give approval to those who practice them. And you look out at our world and you know our world's broken and you say, that pretty much gets it. That captures, like if our world was just a little bit kinder, a little bit less angry, a little bit less envious and covetous, a little bit quicker to look to God and his standards instead of encouraging people to do wrong. It'd be a lot better place. And so all who kind of realize the, the brokenness of this world hear this passage and go, yep, there's something wrong out there. Those bad people out there. And then chapter 2, verse 1 hits us. Therefore, you... Have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you contemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, all of us were kind of nodding in agreement, saying, yeah, the world out there has a problem. God's scripture turns and points its finger at us. It says, it's us. Because the oak tree we're condemning out there 
has an acorn that is in my own heart. So maybe I look out at corrupt politicians who are using their power for shameful gain. And it grieves my heart. But then, in just the little bit of authority that God's given me, I can manipulate or demean in order to get my own way. Or we shake our head in disgust at the, at the corporate greed that's out there. But then with just the little bit of money that God's entrusted to me, I use it for selfish gain, not generous. Or maybe it breaks our hearts when we hear about different instances of grievous sexual exploitation. And yet we ourselves in our own mind can objectify, say, women and think of them as mere objects for our own sexual gratification in our own imaginations. And God's word saying, look, why is that? Why can you look out at the oak tree and say that's wrong and yet tolerate the acorn in yourself? It's because we're all under sin. Look at 2.14. The argument builds. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that means they don't have the scriptures, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their own hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, okay, let's try it this way. Forget the scriptures for a moment. Just think of your own moral standard, whatever it is. What do you think is right and what do you think is wrong? You don't even measure up to your own standards, let alone God's. Whatever it is that you think this is bad and this is good, you still do the bad things sometimes. Why is that? Why is it that even my own internal standard of what is right and wrong, I cannot live up to? 3 9. It's because we're all under sin. The argument continues to build in, in 2.17. Now addressing the people who have the scriptures. So if you, if you grew up around the scriptures, if you maybe grew up in a home where you were taught the Bible and what, it's, what it says, listen to what it says to us. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Here it comes. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? And then it gives several more examples. Same thing. Okay, now we have the law. We know it. We were taught it. We know it well enough that we can be teaching it to others and we can say, hey, that 
you're, you're acting in a blind way there. That's dark. Don't go that way. Well, why do we do some of the very same things? Do you see what the scriptures are doing? They're making a case. They're helping us all see that we are all under sin. All of us. Everyone. And so when we get to 3.9, it's not a surprise then for our then... Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then to, to put the cherry on top of the argument, there's what's, what, what I heard called an argument by avalanche. Scripture after scripture after scripture is quoted, all making the same point how people are wicked. Now, some of them, if you, if you go back, most of these quotations come from the Psalms. I think one's from Proverbs, one's from Isaiah, there's one from Ecclesiastes. But they're, they're all, some of them speak kind of generically to all people when you go back and read them in their context. Some of them are referring specifically to wicked people who've turned their back on God. And some of them are referring to the God's people themselves in the Old Testament. The point isn't to say every single one of these verses applies perfectly to every single one of us. You know, we're all swift to do violence and, and trying to murder or something like that. The point is to say, listen to the scriptures and how they talk about humans. And the scriptures make clear all of us are sinful. Which is why 3.19 says, now whenever the scriptures speak, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. In other words, anyone who takes the Bible seriously, can't think that we're righteous on our own because the scriptures are so clear that all of us are under sin. And so then comes the conclusion, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There's no path to justification. By works of the law. That means the, the, the very system that God set up in the Old Testament, whereby we could try and deal with our sin, even in your best slavish attempts to follow the system, it's not enough. You can't pay off all the signs you've damaged and do 100 hours of community service. That system itself ultimately can't justify you. And if God's system can't, no human system can. We're all under sin. It's like a magnet that keeps drawing us and drawing us. We try and turn away from back. What, what is it for you? That sin that just... You can't shake. Maybe it's a certain addiction to a substance. Maybe it's times that just anger floods over you and controls you. Maybe it's a bitterness, a lack of a willing heart to forgive that's just eating at you. And you know the right way, but you can't get away from it. It's because we're all under sin. And, it, and it's such that we, we're not naturally able to be declared righteous, and we can't then earn it. We can't then work our way to it. No matter what we do, we cannot be justified. All under sin. No path to justification. 3, 9 to 20. But the scriptures do not leave us there. Our passage does not leave us there. So this sermon isn't going to leave us there. 
3.21 to the middle of verse 25. A path to justification. A path to justification. Remember I said justification, justification and righteousness are kind of the same root word in the Greek. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. We can't, and there's no path to justification. Now, a righteousness revealed. The righteousness of God revealed. It says, look, it's, it's not through the system of, of, of trying to, to, to work our way to righteousness, but the law and the prophets do point to it. All of that was intended to be a shadow. Yes, it was meant to reveal our sin and show us how much we needed a Savior, but it was also a shadow pointing forward to something, and that shadow that it was pointing forward to has now come. There is a path to our justification. You can't earn it. You don't have it naturally. You can't do enough to get there. You can't do enough works, works to the law, to justify yourself, but there is a righteousness, and how do we receive it? Look in verse 22. I love how this weaves together the fact that we're all under sin, and then what Christ offers us. Listen. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How can we be justified? How can we have this righteousness of God be ours? How can we be declared righteous not on the basis of our own efforts, our own righteousness, but on the basis of God's righteousness? How can that happen? Through propitiation. Probably a good time to stop and explain that word. Believe it or not, there are certain things that the ancients understood much better than we do today. You don't have to read a lot of ancient literature to realize they really, when they looked out on the world, no matter what their religious beliefs, they knew it was a mess and so the gods should be against them. This isn't a good situation and the gods are probably against us. And so they, they would try to um, come up with a system to be able to avert God's just anger against them for their wickedness. They would try to propitiate the wrath of the gods. So they might say, okay, uh, God, if we give you this grain, will, will that satisfy you? Oh, that didn't? Okay, how about my finest pig? Let's try that. No, the drought's still there. In fact, it worsened. A fire, a fire got, uh, the fire started in the field and burned half our crop. They might even go as far as something like, I'm going to offer my daughter. Maybe that'll satisfy God. They're trying to propitiate God's wrath. Satisfy him so that his, his anger, his just anger is turned away. That's what they were trying to do. Now I said, we don't get that today. And I think that's true, but we do do this in small ways sometimes. 
we, we do know, we, we sense that, ah, kind of botched that, I messed that up. And so we try and balance the kind of cosmic karma but by satisfying whatever gods there are out there, but by, by doing good deeds, right? Kind of like bringing flowers to the wife you upset. I, I don't know how I've upset the nature of this universe, but I got to do certain things to bring good. We're, we're really trying to propitiate God, the gods. And it's exhausting because you never know if you've done enough. Was the grain enough? Was identifying with that important movement enough? Do I, do I need to just put orange on my Facebook page? Do I need to wear an orange shirt? Do I actually need to go and have conversations with indigenous people? What do I need to do? What's enough? What's enough? We don't know. I got to try more and more and more. What can wash out the spot? We're all trying to propitiate the just anger of God against us. That gives you a sense of the word propitiate. And that's why it's glorious news. Glorious news that God loved us so much that God the Son took on flesh and lived a perfect life so that he could stand in our place and absorb the wrath of God that we deserve poured out upon us so that God's anger could be diverted away from us onto him. He could propitiate the wrath of God and therefore allow his righteousness to be counted for us. That is glorious news. When you hear that word propitiate, it's satisfying the just anger of God and then also allowing us to be declared righteous on that basis. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what this table here represents. What Jesus did for us. What Jesus did for me. And for every one of you. All who are under sin. Because you can't be justified through your efforts. You can't be justified by just trying harder and harder and harder. Can't be justified because you're such a decent person. There's no path to justification there. But there is path to justification through the propitiatory work of Jesus on our behalf where he became our substitute and bore that wrath. So we're not left feeling, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Instead, it is finished. And the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. That there is a way for us to be declared righteous and therefore restored, redeemed, restored to fellowship with our Father and allowed to dwell in his presence for eternity. It's all a gift, it says, a grace. And all we have to do to receive it is entrust ourselves to Jesus. To say, Jesus is my safe place. 
I will find my safety in him. He will be my king. He will be my high tower. He will be my refuge. I am hiding in Jesus. Turn from that life of sin. Embrace him instead as the safe place. And when we do that, that's what faith is, entrusting ourselves to him. It's all we do. And sinners like us, under that magnet pole of sin, under the cruel tyrant sin, are made righteous, declared righteous, justified. That's why justification through propitiation is such good news. There is one more unit of our passage from the middle of 25 to 26. I labeled this the God of justice. Because when you hear that God has forgiven sinners, there is a question that must be asked. How can God be just and overlook sin? That's actually a question that we, again, moderns don't ask very often. We kind of think of God like Oprah on her television show. Here's one for you and one for you and one for you. Just freely giving out to whoever wants. Here's one for you. Here's one for you. Like it doesn't cost anything. Here it is. That's a wrong view of God. Because it would be a deficiency in God if he was not just. Let me, let me explain it like this to maybe help us get the concept. Let's say, hypothetically, there was a Canadian, and he intentionally started a fire in a, in a village so that, so that spread and consumed the whole village. And as, as those villagers were forced to flee to another part, nearby town, that same man poisoned the water supply there. I've seen how Canadians respond when somebody threatens the good of the people. Now, let's say, uh, again, hypothetically, Prime Minister Trudeau was like, I'm, I'm a loving, kind Prime Minister. And I want people to know how loving and kind I am. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. This man, I forgive him. He's absolved of it all, everybody. I've forgiven him. Everything's good. We would all be outraged. You cannot treat our nation like that, and then we just wink at it. There would be a deficiency in a prime minister's character if he was to do something like that. We'd say, that's not loving. Do you love us? Do you care for us? Do you care for the good of our nation? If you do, if you really love, then you'll do something about that. It would be a deficiency in God's character. If all he did was wink at sin so it could be forgiven. If he didn't, if he was not just. And here's the reality. The scriptural reality. Any one sin 
is an act of rebellion against God and it has damaging consequences for his whole kingdom. We see that in the Garden of Eden. I mean, what was the sin? All they did was take of a forbidden fruit on a lush tree in the middle of a beautiful garden. It's not even too bad, but in so doing, by rebelling against the creator God and rejecting the laws of his kingdom, they unleashed a poison. It's like this canister that once it's popped, the poison spreads everywhere and contaminates everyone and everything. So that from that point on in Eden, everything's a mess. And so when we do just, just the smallest sin, It is of the greatest evil because we are rejecting our creator, asserting our autonomy from him. And if this, if his kingdom was whole and pure and good and we were a part of it and did that, it would contaminate it for everyone. It's worse than that hypothetical Canadian I described. One act of sin. And how many have I committed already this morning? Let alone in my lifetime. And so is God just to just wink at that like he did in the Old Testament? None of the Old Testament, like people who died in the Old Testament with faith in God were able to be saved. And what about today? People who have faith in Jesus can just be forgiven? My grandpa can be 80 in his 80s. The life he lived, which he wasn't a terrible man, but he sinned too. And he can be forgiven at the end just because he puts faith in Jesus? How, how is that fair? Well, God is loving. He is merciful. He's also just. And the way he can overlook this, he was able to overlook the sins in the Old Testament and the way he's able to overlook the sins of those who put their faith in him now is because of propitiation. A sacrifice was made so that the Scales of justice were balanced. The God of justice can also be the justifier because of what Jesus did. Justification through propitiation. I said at the beginning that it might be that, that three-word phrase might be the best news your soul could possibly receive, that my soul could possibly receive. Because it means we don't have to stack up our own attempts to propitiate. It means we don't have to try and try through our works of the law to try and wash out the spot. All we have to do is entrust ourselves to Jesus. Find our safety in him. That's what this table before us is all about. It's for people who have found their rest in him and said, I am celebrating the propitiation of Jesus on my behalf. I know there are some here who have yet to embrace Jesus like this. And you're still trying. Maybe you just say, I'm going to think of myself as righteous. 
I hope God's word has been heard. You realize I'm not righteous. I'm under sin. There's no path to my justification. But I also hope you hear what Jesus has done for you because God loves you so much. Children, God loves you enough to save your soul from sin and the penalty it deserves. Embrace Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to turn our attention to the table, and it's the right thing for us to do after a sermon like this, to celebrate what Jesus has done through his death for us. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you for the glorious truth presented here, justification through propitiation. Thank you for not only this uh, kind of big word phrase, but also this very tangible meal before us. And I pray that as we partake of it, you would remind our souls of the once for all sacrifice. It is finished. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.